John chapter one, well, I just wanna point something out that so um, is great about our worship. If you were to look at our bulletin, you'll see there that this will be the fifth scripture reading we'll have this morning. That you get a call to worship and you have a, 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 ver, a Old Testament reading and we have a, an assurance of pardon and we have a New Testament reading and now we read from the Gospel of John that part of what we want to do here is, is, is as much as we highlight, and yes, we give a lot of time to the sermon, we think it is so valuable for you to just hear the word of God. That in a world where people are, don't even, they may, Christians don't even get to read God's word often, or they don't take the time to do so, that you would know there's a place in your week where we're gonna bathe you in the word of God. So we're gonna hear more of the word of God this morning from John chapter one, verses 35 through 51, as I'll finish the first chapter of John as we are in our third week on this new series on the Gospel of John that we'll be in for probably two years. We'll take breaks, don't worry. We'll take breaks to do other things, but uh, we'll be in it for quite some time. But we'll pick up in verse 35. So read along as I read out loud. You read along in your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen for you as well. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and as he walked by, Jesus walking by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That's about four o'clock in their parlance. One of the two had heard John speak and followed Jesus. Well, that person was Andrew. Andrew was Simon's Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, And said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God and you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, you know, there are... um, there are some key moments, some key introductions to your life that you will probably remember to, you know, for the rest of your life. That first time you met somebody that became you know, very sign- a significant other in your life, the first time you had a conversation uh, with them or met them. I remember seeing her at a, at a reception desk at Reformed Theological Seminary, and then I remember taking notice of her as she walked in and took her place at chapel at RTS in Orlando. But the first time I met Meredith Sherlin, the woman who had become my wife, was on a Friday morning at the Starbucks on Red Bug Lake Road in Tuscawilla Drive. 
And I looked across, and she was sipping her coffee early on a Friday morning, and she was reading her Hebrew Bible. And I mean literally a Hebrew Bible. She was reading her Old Testament straight out of the Hebrew. And I don't know if there's anything sexier than seeing a girl read straight out of the Old Testament in the Hebrew. There she is right there. No, no, that's Missy. There's Meredith. She's right there. But then she got up and she came walking towards me and introduced herself saying, we have a mutual friend. She, she knew my friend Mike. And then after introducing herself, she said she and, her, and some friends were having a party and she invited me to the party that was going to be at her house. And she's been dragging me to parties that I didn't want to go to ever since. Um, <laughs> well, what I want, I want to focus on today is first meetings, first encounters that people have with Jesus. What we have here today is four introductions to Jesus. Now, we have been introduced to who Jesus is in this first chapter of John. He is the light of the world. He is the word. He is the life of man. He is the redeemer. He is the lamb who has come to save his people from their sins. And we have been introduced to the first witness. His name was John the Baptist, whose job it was, like ours, is to point the way to Jesus, to say, it's not about me, it's about him. Go behold him. And that's what John the Baptist does here at the beginning of our passage today. He says to his disciples, the, only, the very people who have been following him, he says, don't follow me, behold him. Go follow him. Well, there's more of the story behind how Meredith and I met. Before that day in which she came up to me in Starbucks and so provocatively asked me to come to a party, Meredith, um, and before Meredith and I had met, she had been hearing about me. You see, Meredith... Um, she had been at seminary uh, a year before I was, and she kept getting asked out. Pastors, uh, single pastor, guys who are studying to be pastors, usually desire to get married, and so she became a fairly hot commodity around the seminary. And her roommate, her roommate at that time, was engaged to a friend of mine named Mike. Now, at this time, I was not at Reformed Theological Seminary. I was overseas serving with Campus Crusade for Christ, living in Bosnia. But Mike knew that the very next year, I was intending on coming to that same seminary. And so my friend, Mike, during that year, while I was overseas, and during this year in which Meredith was being asked out by any of these numbers of schmucks at the seminary, my friend Mike kept saying this, there is one greater than these who is coming. <laughs> And he called her to repent of dating all of these other men. And when I arrived, my friend Mike said to Meredith, behold. <laughs> and there I was. And because of that, she introduced herself to me. My, my friend's goal was that Meredith and I would meet, that we would encounter each other. And that is actually John's goal as well. That John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, there's something better. I want you to meet him. And that's actually the goal of this book as well. John the Baptist is one character, but the man who wrote this book is John the Apostle. And he writes this book so that us as readers today might encounter Jesus. And indeed, that is my desire as well. That you would be introduced to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. That you would encounter him. Let's pray to that end. Will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that by the Spirit of God, that there are those this morning who would hear these introductions and that they would want to meet Jesus. Whether they, they want to meet Jesus for the first time or whether they want to meet Jesus for the thousandth time today, or they go, I want, to, I want to encounter Jesus. Would we encounter you again 
or perhaps for the first time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First encounters, first meetings. That's what we want to look at today. Well, you see three things this morning, three overall headings, and I'm going to have actually quite a few subpoints. So this is going to be a bony sermon. A lot of points and subpoints, so try to follow along. I try to give you as best I can the kind of the scaffolding through the slides. But first of all, our first encounter with Jesus can be quite hard to ignore. There are four introductions in the midst of this passage that we read this morning, and I want to walk through each of them. First is Andrew's introduction or encounter with Jesus. And in that encounter, what we see is that Jesus invites Andrew to deep reflection. What we're going to see in each of these encounters is that Jesus comes hard in the paint. He does not pussyfoot around. I mean, he gets after it in the midst of this of this, of these introductions. What we see is in verse 37 and verse 38. The two disciples heard of Jesus and they follow him and Jesus turns around and looks at him and says, what do you want? What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now this question makes sense as simply a straightforward part of the narrative. Jesus simply asked two men that are following him around what they want from him. And if somebody is wandering around after you, you might ask the same question. But there is more to this, don't you think? These are the first words that the Apostle John puts into the mouth of Jesus in his gospel. In other words, there's something significant that he's wanting to communicate to his readers. That he's asking these, this same question. You're, you're thinking about following Jesus? You're investigating Jesus? Here's a critical question. What do you want from him? What are you seeking? And here the Apostle John and indeed, Jesus in this is asking a deeper question than simply what's on the surface. What do you want out of life? And what do you want out of Jesus? Do you know what you want? You know, one of the most famous scenes that's been memorialized among gifs and memes is this one from the notebook, where in frustration, these two lovers, the guy goes, what do you want? Over and over again. And she can't answer the question. And this is what Jesus is asking us. Listen, you've claimed to be a disciple of Jesus. You come to church. You've tried to find out about who he is. But he's asking this question, well, what do you want from him? What are you seeking from him? Do you want him to fix your marriage? Are you after him trying to fix your singleness? Or your lack of children? Or fix your job? What do you want from Jesus? What are you really seeking? So often people come to Jesus and they come to Jesus because of felt needs. And Jesus is looking at these two men and saying, what is it that you want from me? What kind of Messiah do you want? What kind of Jesus do you want? And so let me ask you this, for those of you that are here, are you investigating Jesus for a particular reason? If you're following Jesus, maybe you've been doing so for years and years and years, but when was the last time that you simply asked yourself, why am I following Jesus? What am I seeking to get out of this? Why have I chosen to follow him around in life? Well, the narrative continues on. There is the ask to simply say, hey, we want to know where you're staying. And Jesus responds, well, if you want to know where I'm staying and what I'm about, why don't you come and see me? Come and see. Now, on the one hand, again, verse 39 says, hey, follow me and I'll show you where I'm staying. Simple, that's all that's on the surface. But again, there's probably more here going on. This is an invitation. What are you seeking? What do you want out of me? And they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, we want to find out about this guy. And he says, you want to find out about me? You want to find out about what I can do for you, how I can provide for you, what I can do in your life? And Jesus says, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see? This is an invitation. Not only what are you looking for out of me, but why don't you come see what I can provide for you? 
Put aside. If the, there's there's got to be an answer to, on the other side of all of your searching and your seeking. Have you sought out an answer? And listen, if you're seeking, and if you're seeking something in life, would you be willing to take Jesus' invitation and come and see what he might be able to answer? What his answers to you are about the purpose of life and about what he says about marriage and what he says about how you are to live and also how are you to be redeemed and how these weaknesses in you might be transformed? Come and see. Come and see what Jesus does. Come and see about who he is. Are you willing to find out about who Jesus really is? This is not necessarily a salvation experience for these men, but this is the beginning of their discipleship which is simply this, you wanna be a disciple of Jesus, it begins with this, is the willingness to answer the call that says, would you be curious about who he is? Would you be willing to open a Bible and say, I'll read about him. I'll find out about the claims of Christ. He claim, does he, is he really resurrected? Does he really claim to be able to save people from their sins? Can he really do that? What does he do in order to do that? Come and see. What do you want? What do you want from life and what do you want from Jesus? Can he answer those questions? And would you, would you have the audacity to follow him to try to get your answers? So that is the disciple Andrew. And then Andrew goes and finds Peter. And this brings us to our next encounter where we see Peter's encounter. In verse 42, Andrew brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so what we see in Peter's encounter is Jesus, again, Jesus is coming strong into the paint here. Jesus gives him a new identity. He walks straight up to Peter, and what appears to be their first meeting and goes, I'm gonna rename you. I'm gonna give you a whole new identity. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, oh, you are Simon, son of John. It's almost as if Jesus is going, oh, I've heard of you. That's gotta be unnerving for anybody who begins, who's being in the middle of a conversation with Jesus, the beginning of a conversation with Jesus, if Jesus walks up to you and goes, oh, you're Jim Whittle, that might be rather unnerving. Now, Whittle is not unnerved by anything, but most of us would be. If someone walked up to me and be like, oh, you're Andrew Henley, I might go, uh-oh. But Jesus continues. He then has the audacity to rename Peter. Simon, son of John, you're not going to be who you once were, but now I'm going to declare over you a new name, Cephas. And what is the name Peter is what it's, how it's translated into the Greek. What does that name literally mean? The rock. The rock. Now, here's the connection here. This is kind of like giving someone a nickname for something for which they are the exact opposite. Peter is anything, and what we'll see in the Gospels is that Peter is anything but the rock. There is no one who is more mealy-mouthed, who puts his foot in his mouth more often, who is, vacillates back and forth more than Peter. Peter is anything but a foundation and a steady presence. He's an emotional ba basket case most of the time. This is like naming an offensive tackle Tiny or the stage name for Ariana Grande. She's about 75 pounds, sobbing wet. But th and that's what Jesus is calling Peter. Peter, unstable, emotionally erratic Peter, I'm calling you the rock. But he was a hot mess, but Jesus is painting for, a picture for Peter of what Jesus will make him to be. From the very beginning, he's invading his life and he's saying, Peter, I have a plan for your life. Reminds me of the four spiritual laws, the Campus Crusade we used to use. I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And here's my wonderful plan. I'm gonna turn you 
from this emotional basket case, this man who is unstable in all sorts of ways, and I'm going to make you the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. And he, that's what he does for Christians as well today. You know what your name is? When he calls you and says, you, I want you to follow me, he comes into your life and he says, you are now Christian. You know what Christian means? Little Christ. You are now a saint, a holy one. You who is filled with sin, and unrighteousness is now declared righteous. You who are anything but holy is now, when you come to Christ, he says, I'm gonna make you a holy one. And so he comes to the people in this world who know their name. And it may not have been anything like as, as comforting as the name Simon. But perhaps the name that you know deep down is something like, my name is Slut. And he says, I call you to myself, and I invade your life, and he says, I now call you Pure. To the lonely, he gives the name friend. And to the angry, he gives the name meek. And to the fearful, he gives the name courageous soldier. When Jesus introduces himself to you, you might find that at that first introduction, he calls you into something more than you could have ever imagined that you might be. Have you ever heard the voice of Jesus call you by a new name? Son and daughter? Third encounter, it's Philip's encounter. Third encounter, it's very simple. Jesus walks up to Philip and says, two words, follow me. Again, rather audacious on Jesus' part. And here we see that when we, at first interaction with Jesus, sometimes it comes in the version of a, simply a demand by Jesus that you follow him. What does it mean to become a Christian? According to the Gospels, this is the most simple definition. Following Jesus. It does not start with being perfect. It is not to know every answer and every theological question. It is not to put aside all doubts in your life, but it is simply this. It is to follow Jesus. Jesus invites people to follow him, and he says, just go with me wherever I go and do whatever I do. You know, that's what it meant back then to follow somebody. They come in, they show up, Andrew and his other friend, they call him rabbi. That's how they understood. And back in those days, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, you'd go through a series of tests and you'd say, I want to follow you as my rabbi. And the rabbi would ask you questions. And if you passed that series of tests, you would then get to be his disciple. And once invited in as that rabbi's disciple, you would go with them wherever they went. You would listen to them. You would obey them. And you would do whatever they did. And what I just outlined for you is the very basics of what a disciple of Jesus Christ who's following Jesus is called to do. Listen to him, obey his commands, and do as he does. To do as he does. And Jesus comes and he actually does, he makes this call at the beginning, at the first introduction, to say, you want to follow me? Here's what it means. Go with me wherever I go and do whatever I do. I do think that this, doing what Jesus does has fallen on hard times because we've, we've become people who like to so critique the previous generations and what they did in their Christianity and to poke holes in all of the kind of the, the, the faulty aspects of it that, that we, we've actually sometimes thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So, you know, when I grew up, you know, we had these bracelets called the WWJD bracelets. They're still around. It took the, the world by storm uh, when I was a, a teenager. But it actually, the phrase, what would Jesus do, came from a book. It was uh, a book by a guy named Charles Sheldon who wrote a book called In His Steps. And it's the story of a young adult who was actually quite wealthy, came from a family of wealth, 
who took the invitation by a friend of his who simply asked him and told him to do this, to imitate Jesus seriously, and the means by which he was to do that is to ask himself over and over again in every situation, what? What would Jesus do? Now, there are problems with that because, one, you're not called to be Jesus. You're not supposed to die for the, for the, for the sins of the world. But let me tell you, you can come up with a lot worse things than asking that question. That having this view that my life is about following him and saying, I will do what he tells me to do, and I will do what he does. What a beginning and what an introduction. Fourth introduction we see here is Nathaniel's encounter. And here we see that Jesus reveals right out of the gate an intimate recognition of Nathanael. Verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he's saying, here's a guy who calls it like it is. This is a straight shooter. He ain't no liar. He's going to tell you like it is. He's like Ryan Ayers. You ever been around Ryan Ayers? He's a farmer. He ain't got no time to mess around. He's going to tell you like it is. He says, that's a sheep. I call that a sheep. All right, that's how Nathaniel is. But he continues on. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that is the key phrase. I saw you. He says, Nathaniel, I know you. It's actually repeated five times, both in these verses and some other surrounding verses. The word saw, saw, and that is exactly the point. The point is that Jesus is looking at Nathaniel and saying, I see you. I know you better than you know yourself. Now that's, again, that's coming into the paint rather hard. First introductions, you walk in, you know, I know you better than you realize. Not only is that, but it feels rather creepy, doesn't it? Rather invasive. I saw you under the fig tree. What? Now we don't understand what was going on under the fig tree, whether it was some sin by Nathaniel or some great moment of crisis or some longing or some prayer. But here's what we do know is that Nathaniel saw, Jesus saw Nathaniel and he says, I loved you and I set my eyes on you before you'd ever heard of me, before you knew anything about me. My eyes were on you and I knew you. I formed you and I shaped you, Nathaniel. And this has been the message of the Bible throughout various places. For example, in Jeremiah chapter one, God the Father says to the people of Israel, I formed you in the womb. I knew you and I set you apart. The apostle Paul says the same thing in Ephesians one. He says, I knew you before the foundation of the world. And this is the experience of some in a first encounter with Jesus. That Jesus invades their life and they suddenly realize that as they read the gospels that they are reading about someone who looks at them and knows them better than they've ever known themselves. And not only that, but in knowing them, he has placed his affection upon them. Not because they're great or because they're good or because they're wonderful, but simply because he sees them and loves them. And so here's the question. Here's the issue with all of these. He's hard to ignore on first encounters. He can be very hard to ignore, but here's the question for us. Maybe, maybe you're ignoring him. Despite how hard he's coming in, into the paint, maybe you shouldn't ignore him. If someone claims what Jesus claims to be the Lamb of God and the Savior of sinners and the life of the world and the light in the midst of the darkness, and he comes in and he knows you this well, and he has this audacity, it's nothing else 
you should, he should at least cause some curiosity for you to go, I, I want to find out a little bit more about him. And then I'm not going to simply ignore him, but I'm going to find out about his claims upon my life and his claims about what he has done in this world. So first introductions with Jesus, they can be hard to ignore. Now, each of these interactions led to some strong, strong first impressions. Now, I want you to know this. It's a strong first impression that they have of Jesus, but not necessarily complete. It's a strong first impression, but an incomplete first impression. After each of these encounters with Jesus, these guys all make some pretty bold and rather hasty declarations about who Jesus is, but they weren't necessarily all wrong. After Andrew's encounter with Jesus, he runs off and he tells Peter what? We found the Messiah. Philip goes and tells Nathaniel they, they have found the one to whom all the Old Testament is about. And then Nathaniel declares Jesus to be the son of God and the king of Israel. Now in actuality, each of these guys are saying pretty much the same thing about Jesus. They just do it in different ways. Andrew calls Jesus the Messiah. The term Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew or the Aramaic word, which simply meant anointed one. And, and actually, the gospel, in the Gospel of John, John translates it into Greek, and the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. When we call Jesus the Christ, that is not his middle name, that is his title. That he is Christ, Jesus, the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, and those Israelites who would have heard this, that they would have understood that an anointed one, that people who got anointed in the Old Testament were kings of Israel. That's who got anointed. So that's the Messiah. Then we have Philip saying, Jesus is the one written about in the law and the prophets. The people indeed of Israel were indeed looking for someone. Their scholars would read the Old Testament and they would say, we're reading the Old Testament and we see all these passages that we seem to think, it seems to under, we seem to understand this as being that God is saying there's someone who's going to come, an anointed one, a king of Israel, who's going to save us. And they were looking for that person. And that's who Philip believes Jesus is. And then lastly, Nathaniel says, describes Jesus as the son of God and the king of Israel. This is Nathaniel's way of saying, I have found the new David. I found the new and better David. I found the promised king, the anointed one who's in the line of David. Both in Psalm 2 and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, these passages speak of a coming king of Israel who will be in the line of David, who will be a king like David over Israel, and that king will be referred to as the son of God. And as the Jewish people studied the Bible, they rightly formed some great expectations about this son of God and this king of Israel and what he would do. Now let me give you an illustration of what one of these is. It's called a messianic psalm. Psalm chapter two, so right out of the gate in the Psalms, it says this, and this is what scholars, Old Testament Hebrew scholars understood this to be a passage about the coming Messiah. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So it's the Lord saying to this king, you're my son. He's always a son of the Lord. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, inherit your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. So now he, the psalmist is speaking to the nations saying, okay, there's this son of God, this king who's gonna come and do some serious business in the world. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So the first impression by all three of these guys is that Jesus is that Messiah. He is that king that Psalm 2 is talking about, this son of God. Now you read the things that Psalm 2 talks about and you begin to understand why the early disciples had the understanding about Jesus that they did. What Messiah did they want? Did they believe that Jesus was gonna be the savior of sinners? What did they want from Jesus? They wanted Jesus to be the one who came and smashed Rome and broke the yoke of their slavery. They wanted a nationalistic Jesus who would humble all the other kings of the earth, who would come and make Israel great again. That was the message they wanted from Jesus. That's what they wanted. Make Israel great again. This is the kind of Jesus and the Messiah that they looked at. And that is both sort of true. Jesus was gonna make Israel great again, but it also wildly misses the mark. Does Jesus come to set captives free? Yes. But not just physical oppression, but also from the far greater oppression of sin and death. He didn't come to simply free Israel from enslavement to the Romans. He came to free them from enslavement from sin. You also see that Jesus come to be the king of Israel? Yes, but it is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a kingdom limited to Israel, but it's a kingdom that is gonna reign over all the earth. In other words, he's not coming to make Israel great again. He says, I'm coming to make the kingdom of God great in this world. This is far greater. This is far greater, Messiah, than they can possibly imagine. That the kingdom of God will be great upon the earth. That he'll bring perfect justice and perfect peace and put an end to all sin and all death. This is the Messiah that Jesus says I've come to be. And so I want you to see here that they got it, they've gotten a very strong first impression about who Jesus is. Okay, he's a Messiah. He's gonna do something really good. He's a king. They were been looking forward to this guy. But also understand that they have a very mixed up belief in him. It is not a perfected belief. Now I wanna point out two things that is really important about what Jesus does in response to these declarations by these men. First, Jesus does not squash their imperfect professions of faith. Their first impression of Jesus is mixed with, it's a mixed bag. It's full of mixed motivations. It is lacking so much understanding about who Jesus really is. But there is some truth here. And this is true for those of us who counter Jesus today for the first time. You, you come to him and you have some sense of who he is, but it's just a tiny little kernel of knowledge, such a tiny little small understanding of who he really is. Often we come to Jesus longing, as we talked about earlier, to have a savior who can fix our marriages or fix our kids or bring us some purpose and joy in life, and, and that's not wrong. But Jesus says, I've come to do far more. I've come to do far more. And Jesus is willing to invite them into relationship with him, not despite the fact that they don't fully understand who he is, but because of the fact that they don't fully understand who he is. And he says, yes, you've given a profession about who I am. Now, would you come and find out more? And so here's the application. For those of you that maybe don't know much about Jesus, Jesus welcomes sinners. And he welcomes doubters like Nathaniel and cynics. And so it is for the church of Jesus Christ. We are called to be a people who are, who are not scared to talk about our doubts. We welcome people who are scared, though, to talk to Jesus in prayer. We welcome the people who come in with mixed motivations. We welcome the people who don't have a deep understanding of who Jesus is. We welcome those who have doubts about who Jesus is. And we say, cool, 
Come and see. You have a small understanding. It isn't perfect. Why don't you just come and follow him for a while? So that's one side of it. On the other side, I want you, want you to see this. Not only does Jesus doesn't just jump over them because of the imperfection of the perfection of faith, but also Jesus does not to congratulate these guys for their pronouncements. He, he doesn't say, wow, I mean, already you guys have made it? You have stated the, the Apostles' Creed perfectly right out of the gate? You guys totally get me. Is that what he says? No. What does Jesus do? Jesus actually, in a sense, almost seems to scold Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, you're calling me the king of Israel and the son of God. How about we simmer down now a little bit, fella? Simmer down. Now, you think what I've showed you, when I, I, I show you that I saw you under the fig tree, you think that's so great? You think that's cool? Nathaniel, you haven't experienced nothing yet. And this leads to our final point. He's saying, you don't really understand me. I want you to understand this. A first encounter with Jesus can be just the beginning. It can be just the beginning of a relationship with him. Verse 15 and 51, Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, you'll see greater things, but what will he see? And Jesus goes on to say it in verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okie dokie. Well, that's a deep cut from the Old Testament, and so I'm going to have to do some splaining. Here's what this is from. Jesus is inciting an image or a story from Genesis chapter 28 that is known as the Jacob's Ladder story. Jacob, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob uh, becomes the father of the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob at this point in Genesis chapter 28, things are not going so bueno for Jacob. Jacob has deceived his father. He has betrayed his brother and stolen his brother's birthright. And he has now run off from home because daddy's dead and Esau, his brother, is going to kill him. This is a bad way. And so he's running off into the desert, trying to find, go to some other place where someone, someone's not gonna kill him. And while he's running away, he gets so sleepy, he lays down and he uses a rock as his pillow and he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees heaven open and Yahweh is up at the top of heavens, the heavens and there's a stairway or a ladder. It, it, that's actually not the correct term in, in the Hebrew. It's more of like a causeway, a, a long ramp. Have you ever been to a large stadium that are super wide and it kind of goes in a circle up to kind of the top decks. It's like that. And he sees, that's kind of the, the, the image in the Hebrew. And he sees this ramp and on this ramp is, is angels coming down and going back up. So he sees that these angels are running errands for God. And God is sending all these angels up and down to minister on behalf of Jacob. And they're gonna help miserable Jacob and they're gonna accomplish all of God's promises. So God promises to Jacob, he says, listen, I know you're in a bad way today, but you know what? This very land that you're sleeping on, it's gonna be yours and your people's. I'm gonna give you these blessings. And the angels are there up and down to try to help Jacob. In other words, this is the causeway. This path, this stairwell is the means by which God is bringing his presence here it is, Jacob's running away from his family. He's alone, he's exhausted. God says, I'm giving you my presence and he's protecting Jacob in this moment. And we know Jacob understands this to be the case because when he wakes up, he names the place Bethel, which means the meeting place of God. 
the house of God, or where the gates of heaven open, is what it means literally. And he's saying, this place was where I met God, where God was with me, where I saw God's blessings coming to me in ways I could never have imagined, where God's presence was with me, where I experienced the gates of heaven open, where I saw God. And so what's Jesus doing by alluding to this bizarre story from Genesis chapter 28 and saying this to Nathaniel? Well, here's what he's saying. Nathaniel, when you follow me, you're gonna have an experience like Jacob did. You will see the heavens open up and you will see God, the Father, and you will experience his presence and you'll experience his blessings coming into your life. But Jesus changes one thing from the image from Jacob. In Jacob's image, he sees a stairwell on which angels are coming and going. But Jesus says, that stairwell, it is not a stairwell anymore. He said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to himself. He's saying this, Jacob, I am the stairwell. I am the ramp. I am the means by which you have God's presence. I am the means through which God the Father's blessing and love for you flows out upon you. It is through me. Now notice he doesn't say angels are ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He doesn't say, I am the means by which you can climb to God the Father. No, that is what religion says. Religion always gives you a list of rules and regulations, and if you want to get to heaven, you have to climb up those ladders of all those rules in order to get to God. But here's what he's saying in this image, I am the ladder. You don't have to climb anywhere. That I have brought God down to you. That I've brought him into your very presence. Jesus is saying, I am the stairway, I am the means. I, in other words, I still say in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the path, I am the life. I am the one who opens heaven's gates so that you can experience the blessings of God the Father being poured down upon you. And not because of anything you have done, but because I will make it so. So here's what I want you to see to cl close us this morning is that John chapter one, verse 51 is an invitation and John chapter one is closing with an invitation. Nathaniel wants a, a Messiah as he has imagined him to be, an earthly king who will make life good again, who will remove the shame of Israel and restore Nathaniel's people. But Jesus is looking at Nathaniel and saying this, what you've seen from me in this first little interaction is just the beginning. You have not yet fully begun to imagine what I am up to in this world. And if you would like to know and experience me, not just providing you some cool momentary experiences and benefits, but if you would like to see me break through the gates of hell and destroy sin and death and all oppression and injustice, and that you would like to see me end all slavery and make things good, not just for Israel, but for all people to the end of the earth. And if you would like to see me open heaven's gates where you will be in my eternal kingdom and bask with your eternal father for all of eternity, then follow me, Nathaniel. I am the means by which you'll experience that. Come and see. Come and live with me as the man. And I'll make you the man that you have always meant to become. Come and be fully known and come and fully know me. Oh, Nathaniel, I know you haven't seen much from me, but Nathaniel, would you consider following me and studying me and see if I can do what I'm claiming I can do? And that's the invitation today. That same invitation is before each of you. 
Jesus has dominated the last 2,000 years of human history. Christianity has dominated Western civilization. It is the reason why you think the way that you do and you live the way that you do in so many ways. And so my invitation to you is, might you be curious enough to come and study and behold this one? To take seriously his claims and go, I'm at least gonna try to figure out a little bit what I believe about him and what I want from him. The book of John is an invitation to behold and to encounter and to believe in Jesus. And he, Jesus is saying, I come to give you more of myself. It's an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. And like any relationship, when I met Meredith that day in Starbucks, I had no idea. I, had, I could not begin to fathom what it would become. Imagine what would happen when Jesus invites you to the party of his life. And what you might learn about him and how he might transform your life. So I ask you, as a closing call, would you read the book of John? That's why John was written. It's simply the testimony of this man who followed Jesus around and he's saying, this is what I learned. So would you read it? And here's my invitation. My email address is on the church website. A. Henley, H-E-N-D-L-E-Y at kcpchurch.org. I'd be happy to sit down and just read one-on-one -on -one with you. No pressure. You don't have to believe. You don't have to like say a thousand prayers. But I offer a one-on-one, -on -one just, I'll just read the Bible with you. And there's lots of other people here who would do so as well. Would you come and follow him? Would you at least come and see who he is and what he's about? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I prayed earlier, I pray it again. I pray that by the Spirit of God that, that you would illumine your word in such a way that it would, it would agitate us in spirit, that you would give us a holy curiosity to find out more about who you are. Lord, there are things in this passage that are hard for me, who has a master's degree in this, to explain. <laughs> And, and sometimes that bewilders me that you would, you would use such images like Jacob's ladder. It seems so opaque, Lord. But Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come and make yourself clear to us. That you would come and show yourself to be the savior of our lives. And Lord, where that is unclear for people in this room, I pray that they would have the willingness to, to come and learn. To come and sit at your feet. To try to figure out who you are. To take seriously your claims. And so I just pray that you would do that in the hearts of people, that they would take me up on my offer, that they would take up John on the offer that he has here, this invitation to come and see who Jesus is. And I pray that that would not be simply for the case for the people who may have never known or met Jesus, but it would be the case for those who have walked with Jesus for their entire life, that you would be amazing to us again, that we would encounter the real and living Lord who reigns right now. And we pray that you would do that by the power of your spirit in our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.